0: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com.
1: You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, wavers! So earlier this month, some of our team went to a big science conference in D.C., the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS. This conference attracts scientists from all over the world. I listened to one talk on invisible matter in the universe and another one from a Jordanian princess on strengthening science within her country's borders. Basically, it's a big party for science nerds. We had a blast. And we tried something new. Live interviews with scientists on stage. We're going to share a bunch of those conversations with you in the coming weeks. To get us started, we have a pair of scientists who are tinkering with what arguably is the world's most important staple crop.
2: All of the cereals that we eat and most of the grains are annuals. You have to re-sow them every single year and harvest them. None of them are perennials, meaning they regrow after you harvest them again and again and again. Not just rice.
1: Rice! That's what Tim Cruz is focused on. He's the chief scientist and director of the international program within the Land Institute in Kansas. Specifically, he's talking about a new perennial variety of rice that wouldn't have to be planted every year. And for the first time in probably 10,000 years of human rice cultivation... He says the new strain stays productive, crop after crop.
2: And now it's, it's gotten on to where it's eight consecutive harvests, approximately equal to the annual grain growing alongside as a check.
1: I talked to him and his colleague Eric Sachs, a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Eric studies rice genetics, the science behind this perennial rice, and the impact it's having on the farming communities where it's being put to the test, in China. Humanity depends
3: on basically three staple grains for uh, survival, and those are rice, wheat, and corn. And of those three, rice feeds the most people in the world today. Uh, about half the population depends on rice for sustenance. So it's, it's hugely important.
1: Today on the show, the science behind the rice that regrows on its own. An idea two decades in the making. I'm Regina Barber, and you're listening to Shortwave the daily science podcast on the road from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Samsung Galaxy. Break down language barriers with Live Translate on the all-new Galaxy S24 Ultra. Powered by Galaxy AI, Live Translate gives you real-time translations on calls so you can speak freely with someone in another language. Translate calls just like that with Live Translate on the new Galaxy S24 Ultra. Samsung account login required. Must make calls using Samsung phone app. Live Translate must be enabled and languages preset.
1: I interviewed Tim Cruz and Eric Sachs about this perennial rice on the side mic stage at the back of a busy expo hall. So Tim, can you tell us like how rice right now is farmed?
2: Right. When we grow annual crops, you have to kill all of the vegetation every year and put your seed in the ground so that you don't have competition with every other vegetation since we have to start from a seed every year. That's all well and good except The ground is left bare for many months frequently, and what happens? Well, nutrients leach out, dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and 400 other river mouths around the world. Um, You have soil erosion, you have loss of soil organic matter, you have greenhouse gases, all sorts of negative consequences of starting from scratch. And so, my gosh, if you have a crop that functions more like the natural ecosystem that preceded it, you're not leaching nutrients. You're not eroding soils. You're act- this perennial rice actually shows that the soil was more fertile at the end of the f- four or five years than it was at the beginning. That's, that's an agriculture that we can get behind.
1: Eric, can you talk about anything else? What are the other benefits with labor costs?
3: Right. So uh, planting of rice... Is very labor-intensive, so we have to usually start a seed bed. Uh, then we transplant the rice into a field that's been plowed. That plowing takes effort, and all of that takes a lot of time and money. Uh, in a lot of the world, that's still done by hand, and it often falls to women and children to do that planting and transplanting. So, if you have to do that every season, that's a big cost. It's a big labor expense, but. If you can plant once and then harvest consecutively and get the same kind of yields over four years, and you don't have to do that labor in year two, year three, year four, you save a lot of time and you give Uh, the farmer, especially a smallholder farmer, a lot of extra time to participate in other important labor activities that could generate income. So this could be a great way to pull people out of poverty.
1: And Tim, what's happening right now with your perennial rice?
2: Well, I'm going to let Eric speak to the breeding objectives, but um, there's a lot of work. Now that there is a perennial rice, there's a lot of questions being asked about it. How does the soil microbiome change when you go from an annual to a perennial? What are the trace gas, greenhouse gas emissions like when you go from an annual to a perennial rice, given the concern of certainly methane? Um, And and how stable is the accumulated soil organic matter that you get when when a crop is left in the ground for four years and you don't have the tillage? Things that cause soil organic matter and carbon to leave have been reversed. And so there's really exciting
3: questions.
1: So can you give us kind of the science of like, how is this rice different from what, you know, what we have now?
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. So the way this rice was developed, we crossed a uh, domesticated Asian rice. So just a typical rice variety, actually a cultivar from Thailand, with a wild relative from Africa that's really good at regrowing. And it actually produces long, horizontal, underground stems, which, of course, we don't want. But we like the regrowth part. And then, over many years, selecting for good agronomics, good yield, and ability to regrow after it's cut back, uh, selected a number of different varieties. So three of these cultivars have been released in China, the first one in 2018. And then they've been now available to farmers who have been rapidly adopting them and uh, trying them out. And so... uh, that's that's where we that's where it's gone on, and it's uh, that breeding has all happened in Yunnan. The,
1: the breeding you said.
3: The breeding is so all. So how does
1: the breeding actually work?
3: Okay, so that initial cross was actually a difficult one to make. You don't if you cross those two species together, you often don't get any viable progeny back.
1: How do you cross those two species together? Well, What's take, the mechanics? You take
3: the pollen on of one of them and okay. put them on the the stigma of the other one, the female part of the other flower.
1: I wish our listeners can hear see your hand movements.
3: I know I, I, I want to get the tweezers out and show you yeah. anyway, uh, but. Uh, it, it, and then you hope for a seed, but usually you don't get a good viable seed. So what, what our colleague Dion Tao did, he, at an early stage, around 10 days after the pollination, went in there and dissected out the very young embryo that was developing and put it in tissue culture and gave it nutrients to help it grow. And then he rescued one of these seedlings. And that was the beginning of it. Called Embryo Rescue. Yeah. And
1: what year was that?
3: Oh, that was in the... Uh, 97. Ninety-seven. Ninety-seven.
1: Okay. So, what has happened between that embryo rescue till now?
3: So, uh, there's been a lot of selection. There's been a lot of crossing. And we did a lot of work to identify where in the genome were uh, genes that affected how well the plant regrew. And then we identified molecular markers that we could visualize more quickly and easily to allow us to select those genes very quickly and find progenies that would give us the right combination of regrowth without the rapid spreading of underground stems, which we didn't want.
1: So, Tim, how big is the scale of the crop that you, that's happening right now in China?
2: The latest numbers we have are uh, around 15,000 hectares, and 45,000 farmers.
3: There's about two and a half-ish acres per hectare. So
2: that shows how small the land holdings are of many of these farmers. They're measured typically not in hectares, but moose, which is one-fifteenth of a hectare. Um, so that also shows the scale of subsistence farming that is going on for a lot of this production. Not entirely, but um, yeah. So that, but it is, it's, It's what, quadrupled?
3: Yep, four times in, in, in one, one year. In one
2: year. But it's important to realize that this this rice is subtropical. It's not frost-hardy, right? So it will not... People are like, well, can we grow it in Minnesota? And I'm mm. like, well, you might grow it for uh, six months in Minnesota, but it'll die uh, because <laughs> okay. it cannot persist through anything close to the winters that we have in this in these latitudes.
1: How many times have you had this rice? Well, how would you describe it?
3: So I mentioned there are different cultivars that have been released and they each have a different uh quality characteristic. So some are more fluffy and some are more sticky and so there's there's different types that we have.
1: What do what do the farmers think about this crop? So the farmers that you've actually worked with in China like what is the consensus?
3: So so the the main driver for the farmers who have been adopting it is they're really excited that it takes a lot less labor and a lot less money to produce the rice. as it f- turns out, uh, rice farmers are a lot uh, in China are a lot like farmers in the in America uh, they're getting older the young people are going to the cities for the jobs and so anything that can reduce uh, the amount of labor that's required to produce the crop is a huge advantage
1: so Tim, what are the other grains or crops that you would? like this to be a reality for?
3: Right, so the Land Institute and
2: many colleagues around the world are working on wheat, which is a similar cross between the existing annual wheat and a perennial relative. We're working on sorghum, but then we're also domesticating wild perennial species, but with some modern tools of like genomic selection, using DNA markers to guide the breeding process. We're, we're developing a uh, relative of wheat, Wheatgrass called Kernza, it's in some beers and cereals, um, as well as Silphium, which is an oil seed like sunflower, and then Sanfoin is a is a legume, sort of like a lentil. All of these are perennial. All of them build soil. They they're it's not groundbreaking. It's ground saving work. And uh, yeah, we I'd love to talk to you about it after the show here.
1: And Eric, I'm going to give you the last question. What is your dream outcome for the future of perennial grains?
3: Oh, I'd love to see these crops uh, further develop so that farmers all over the world are growing them and that we have a more sustainable agriculture where we're building soil, not destroying soil, where farmers are able to grow their way out of poverty and uh, we have a sustainable planet and and a happy population, basically.
1: I want to thank you, Eric and Tim. Let's give them a round of applause for coming to talk to us. One voice you didn't hear today, but who was a huge part of this project, is Dr. Feng Yi Hu, Dean of Agriculture at Yunnan University in Kunming. He leads the team that studies, grows, and harvests this new strain of perennial rice. And he was even kind enough to give the shortwave crew a sample of the rice. It was incredibly fragrant and super tasty. And we were told we were the first people outside the research team in North America to have this tasting experience. Before we go, we've had some staffing losses here at Shortwave, and we're going to be in your feed three days a week now. It's going to be the same newsy, nerdy science content you love, and we appreciate all your support of our work. We love making the show for you. See you Wednesday. This episode was produced by Burley McCoy, edited by Gabriel Spitzer, and fact-checked by Agnil Oza. The audio engineer was Gilly Moon. Rebecca Ramirez is our managing producer. Brendan Crump is our podcast coordinator. Beth Donovan is our senior director. And Anya Grunman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Regina Barber. Thank you for listening to Shortwave, the science podcast from NPR. Do you want in on a secret like why your favorite pop star is so popular? Or why a makeup fad is suddenly sweeping your feed? It's that none of these things happen by accident. On the It's Been a Minute podcast, I don't just tell you what's trending. I dig deeper to find out why. Join me, Brittany Luce, on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
0: Every afternoon, here and now, anytime, has a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh perspective on stories that make you think. All in about 30 minutes. Need a solution to the burnout, the bombast, the bloviating of other news? That's Here and Now Anytime, a podcast from NPR and WBUR.